0: Buddy, thanks for being here. Happy Easter. Happy Easter. Now, I grew up in a, uh, in a Catholic church, and uh, maybe you had the same thing in the church that you grew up in, but they always would say, uh, he is risen. The response would be, he's risen indeed. indeed. So let's do that all together. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Now, let me ask you a question. As you say that, do you believe it? And the reason why I ask that is this, because it's very uh, much so that today is the most important day in all of history. Because without the resurrection, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 14 that he says that without the resurrection, everything else that has to do with Christianity is pointless. There's no reason to be doing it if the resurrection isn't true. So aren't you glad the resurrection is true? And as we're doing it today, I want to let you know that we are going to be diving into a passage that talks about how the resurrection is true. And if it weren't true, this passage we're going to talk about today wouldn't even matter. We have a tendency in our culture the more people I talk to, whether they go to church or they don't, we love the teachings of Jesus. Whether people go to church or not, I get people that tell me, oh, we just got to follow the teachings of Jesus. We need to love each other. We need to love God. We need to, we need to help out the poor. We need to do these things. And, and it's, it's uh, I mean, isn't Jesus kind of the ultimate radical? When you really stop and think about it, he's the one that stood up to big government. He's the one that, that stood up to, uh, to the, the Romans. He's the one that, that stood up for the poor. And he went out there and he taught people to love. And we really, really get on that. We can really back ourselves into that. Where people hit the brakes at is this little thing called the resurrection. When he says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, no man comes to the Father except through me, that's when we hit the brakes, that's when we back up, we say, oh, I just just don't think I can grasp that. But here's the problem. We can't take some of Jesus' teachings without all of Jesus' teachings. We can't say, I like this part, but I don't really like this part. And that's kind of where we fall at often as a culture. That we say, this this works, this doesn't. And so, what I want to do today, as we're diving into this and we're looking at this, I want us to understand that, that we have to see the resurrection for what it is that it is the reality that Jesus did defeat death. And as he defeated death and God raised him from the dead, it changes how we live, it changes the teachings that he taught. And we get to see God's love through it all. Because as he taught, you understand, he taught leading up to his death, burial, and resurrection. But we get to read it after the fact. So we get to read it in a whole new light. So if you have your Bibles with you today, I want you to go to Luke chapter 15. As we're opening up to Luke chapter 15, I want you to see this. This is a story called a parable. Parable. And as it's called a parable, a parable is basically a, a basic, ordinary story that Jesus takes and he moves it to be, uh, have a heavenly focus on it. So as it has this heavenly focus on it, we look at it in such a way, I want to see that even today. Because when we look at this parable today, this parable today is called the, the story of the prodigal son. And as we look at this, you've probably heard of it before. You've probably at least heard it referenced before. If you've never been to church before ever, you've at least heard this reference because of the idea of this prodigal son. But what I want you to understand today is it's more than just a story. I want you to hear it for its truth. See, Charles Dickens actually says this is the greatest short story ever written. And we look at that and we say, well, that's great. But if it's just a story, how does it apply to us? If the resurrection were not true and this is just a story... As Paul says, who cares? It doesn't really matter. So as we look at this today, I want you to see it through the truth of the resurrection. Now, when you come to an Easter service, normally you're going to hear about resurrection. Normally you're going to hear about those kind of things. Today, you're not really going to hear that in the story, but I believe you're going to see it in the story. So if you have your Bibles open, Luke chapter 15, we're going to be talking about this prodigal son. There's a couple of things I want to point out to you first. First thing is this. There's three characters in this story. The character number one is the prodigal son, the younger brother. Character number two is the older son, the older brother. And character number three is the father. Now, maybe you've heard this story a handful of times, and as you have, the title itself kind of points toward the direction of it being about the son. I would like to say right now, this story is not as much about the son as it is about the father and his love for his son. Both sons, as a matter of fact. The second thing I want to point out to you is this, the word prodigal. Normally, we take that word as being wayward. Normally, we take that word as being somebody who has wandered off. But the actual meaning of prodigal is actually to be reckless, and it's also to be wasteful. To spend until you can't spend anymore. The only time it's actually mentioned in the verse is is only once in all of it. And so as we're diving into this, I want you to see some things. And as we see some things, I want you to see how it focuses on the Father. And how it focuses on the Father is really pointing us heavenly towards the love of God. So if you have your Bibles open, we're going to start in verse 11. If you don't have a Bible with you, it'll be up here on the screen. This is what it says. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And I want to pause right there for just a second because now we're going to take a look at this younger son. This younger son, he wants to leave home. Not only does he want to leave home, he wants his dad to give him the full inheritance that is his. He wants to be able to take that and go. What he's telling his dad is this, dad, I'm not really wanting to have a relationship with you. I'm not really wanting your rules over me. I want to leave this house, but I want you to pay for it. I want you to give me all the money. I want you to just go ahead and take it and run with it. And basically saying, because you haven't died yet, I wish you were dead. Because you haven't died yet, I'm just going to ask you for it now. That's the reality of this picture that we're seeing here. There's a whole lot of I in this. You might be thinking, okay, well, how does this have to apply to us? What is Jesus talking about? Well, a couple of things we have to understand. First thing is, if you go to the top of Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, it tells you who he's talking to. He's talking to two different groups of people. One, he's talking to the sinners and the tax collectors. The sinners and the tax collectors are the ones that are far from God. Two, he's talking to this group of people called the Pharisees. And as he's talking to the Pharisees, that's our religious leaders. So there's two very different groups of people that he's talking to. And as he's telling this story, he's basically saying, Hey, there's these people who don't want anything to do with the Father. Well, that Father, as we point heavenward, is God. And they're saying, God, I want all the blessings. I like the idea of heaven because hell sounds bad. I like the idea of having stuff that, God, you can give me. However, I don't want your rules, and I don't want you to be telling me what to do, and I don't really even want to go into your house. I don't want anything like that. I want to go far off and do my own thing, but I want you to bless it and be the one who pays for it. So we see this I, I, I. And that's the big problem here is that we have this, I that falls in the middle of this three letter word called sin. And it seems to me that's what sin wraps stuff around. I want control, I want to be in charge, I want to be the one who takes care of what happens next. Now as we see this in the story, we see a, a younger son, but I think oftentimes we can see ourselves in the story as well, as much as we don't want to. But see, you have to stop and think about this too. How painful is this for this father? I mean, maybe you're a parent. Maybe you're a parent and you're watching your kids do dumb things. Maybe you're a parent and your kids, if they had come to you and said, guess what? I don't want anything to do with you. I just want you to give me your money. How are you going to respond to that? What is that going to do? Is that going to be a devastation inside? Are you going to get angry? Are you going to say, what's wrong with you? Is that the way we're going to respond? Probably. But look how this dad responds as we continue in verse twelve. The rest of verse twelve says, and he divided his property between them. So this son comes, says, I wish you were dead. I want all my stuff, and I want it now, and I'm going to leave. And the dad responds by doing so. That's kind of a shocker because once again, as we look at the culture that he's talking to, even in today's culture, that's pretty much a shocker. But when you look at the culture that he's talking to, you have to stop and go, okay. They actually had a a, a custom and and a system that if a son was going to be disobedient and push themselves away, they actually had, and I'm not, I'm really not a a Greek guy or anything like that or a Jewish guy or anything, so I'm going to try and act smart here for just a second, but please know I'm not. They had this thing, as a ceremony, it was called a kazah, sorry, a kazaza is what it's actually called. And so you look at this, and basically what it actually means, it actually means to be cut off. It was a ceremony where they brought the kid in, the entire village gathered around the kid, they broke plates and all kinds of stuff in front of him and said, you are no longer welcome here ever. So he's telling this to a group of people, that's what they normally do. He's also telling this to a bunch of people who know Levitical law from the book of Leviticus, where it says, if you have a rebellious son, you can execute him. Man, we'd have a whole lot less teenagers, wouldn't we? (laughs) But... But the, the reality is, you, you could do that. So he's telling this story. So when it says that the, the, the dad gave all the stuff, you have to imagine the shock that must have been on everybody's face. Going, wait, 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 wait. That's not the way this, this story is supposed to go. But that's exactly what happens. And what we need to see here is I've got some points that I want you to see in this. And the first point is this. God loves you, even after you've rejected him and have grieved his heart. God still loves you. If you were this son and say, God, I want nothing to do with you. I just want the blessings that you have. He still loves you. And that leads us into verse 13. It says, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. That's where that word prodigal comes from. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to the one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. See, the first point is is that God loves you even though you've rejected him and grieved his heart. But the second thing is we need to see that God loves you even as you wander in the darkness, even as you've wandered away. This guy's life started out great he got all the money that he needed, he got all the stuff that he needed, he went off to a far country and had all the parties that he wanted to have. He had lots and lots of friends. Everybody liked him because he paid the bill. And so we have this huge gathering of all these people, but then the scene changes. And as the scene changes, we see everybody leave him, and he is left all alone. He's left poor. He's left begging. He's left working with pigs That's a very specific part of the story because, once again, culturally, you didn't touch pigs. They were unclean, and he was in the midst of them wanting to eat what they ate. So this guy had hit rock bottom. But isn't that a picture of our lives? Because doesn't it usually start out great? Doesn't it usually say that, that we are doing something and we're having fun? Did you know the Bible actually says there's pleasure in sin? If you're not having pleasure in sin, you're not doing it right. Okay, let's just be very honest with that. But here's the deal that the Bible continues to say. It says there's a pleasure in sin for a season. So as we see it's for a season, what happens when that season is over? And it will be over. What do we do when that season comes to an end? Where are we at in our lives? The great thing is, is that God loves us through it all. And maybe that's where you're at right now. Maybe you're stuck in the middle of a sexual sin. Maybe you're stuck in the middle of debt. Maybe you're stuck in the middle of pride. Maybe you're stuck in the middle of greed. Maybe you're stuck in all of these things. And even though it started well, it's ending poorly. Maybe this is a good time to plug Financial Peace University on Thursday night, okay? Maybe that's you. Maybe that's where we are at. What do we do? Well, the great thing is is God still loves us through it all. He loves us even though we've grieved him, even though we've rejected him. He loves us even when we're wandering in darkness far from him. What we need to see here is this. In this story, and you'll see it here in a moment, there's really a split screen going on. Imagine you're watching a video, and this video is focused only on the son, but this video is focused on the dad. The whole time, the dad is waiting. The whole time, the dad is wanting. The whole time, the dad is watching. While the son's being just a bonehead and doing his own thing, dad is right there watching and waiting and hoping that he comes back. God loves us through it all. What happens when the season ends? What happens in our life when that happens? Verse 17 actually says what happens for this guy, this son. But when he came to himself, He said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I'll say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called my sons. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. So here's point number three. The point is is that God loves you as he brings you back. God loves you as he brings you back. And you might be saying, well, wait a second. In this story, God's not bringing him back. This kid's going back there. I want you to see, like I said, Luke chapter 15 has three parables. And the three parables, once again, he's talking to the tax collectors and the sinners, and he's talking to the Pharisees. And in these three parables, it, it starts off with a woman who has lost her coin. And as she's lost her coin, she has ten, or had 10 coins. She lost one, and she's searching all over the house for it because she's desperate to find that coin. The next parable is about a, a, a shepherd who lost his sheep. He had 100 sheep, still has 99. He's lost one, and he goes to every length that he can to find that lost sheep. It jumps to this next story. As we see this increase in value, the climax of the trilogy, he's actually chasing after this is the dad who has lost his son. This is the dad who wants his son back. I don't know about you, but, you know, six kids, there's a tendency to lose them, okay? Uh, I'm just going to be honest. It's, it's like herding cats sometimes. But, but when you turn around and there's one that you can't find, even though they're right behind you and they're just staying out of peripheral vision, you freak out just a little bit. And there's that desperation inside going, where are they? And there's, there's that feeling of uh, helplessness. Imagine what this dad is feeling as he's waiting. As he's watching, he's desperate for his son to return with no idea if he's going to return. But he's desperate to see him return. And, you know, it it tells us, the Apostle John, actually, he writes in 1 John that that God is drawing us nearer to him. God is bringing us in. It's not us chasing after him. It's him chasing after us. We have this tendency to be like that, that painting on the Sistine chapel where the, the man's finger is just kind of like this, and God is stretching and reaching for us. And, and we miss that. And sometimes I think we forget that he's chasing us. I'm not a prophet, but my guess is you're here today for a reason. My guess is, is that God has put you here today for a reason. What that reason is, I don't know, but I guess you do. My guess is is that somehow some way he's whispered to you in the midst of your pleasures and he says I have something greater. Somehow some way he's mi- whispered it to you in the midst of, of your desperation and, and you're, you're just I need something he says I'm here for you. Somewhere some way somebody handed you a card somewhere some way you said I need to go to church on Easter whatever it is you're here for a reason and that reason is because God is pursuing you. He's pursuing you. It may seem random, but it's not. God is here. God is there in the midst of all of that. Picking up in verse 20, this is the response. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now, I want to leave that slide up there. I want you to see this verse because this verse, if you unpack it, it's amazing. What is the dad doing? He's watching, and he's waiting. He's waiting, and he sees his son from a long way off. How did he see the fact that he's out there a long way off? Because he's looking for him a long way, hoping and praying that he gets back. And he saw him, and he felt compassion. And when we see that, like I told you, I'm not, I'm not a Greek guy. I don't look at all the stuff. But this word here stuck out to me because it's kind of cool. It's called splagma. And splagma is that gut feeling that you have inside for compassion. Jesus actually uses it in a different parable about the good Samaritan, where the guy goes and helps out the guy who'd been beat up and robbed and everything else. And everybody else would walk by, but this good Samaritan went and helped. It had splagma, and he felt compassion—that deep gut feeling that we need to take care of this. You know, who else who had splagma, Jesus. Jesus felt compassion, and that's why he came, and that's why he died, and that's why we celebrate a resurrection today, splagma. And we see that feeling that, that this dad has for his son, and then it says he ran. Well, guess what? Once again, talking in culture, talking in culture, men didn't run. Hasn't changed much, but then, then it was an absolute you didn't run. If you were a man of stature, you did not run because you had a long robe on. People don't run in long robes. So you know what he had to do even when he ran? He took his robe and he pulled it up and he exposed his knees. I know, you're like, what? Yeah, that was a bad thing. That was a sign of disgrace to expose your knees. And he ran to his son. And you know what he's doing? He's telling everybody else, I don't care. I don't care what you think, my son is home. The best picture that I have for this is in 1983, North Carolina State was playing against Houston right down here at the Albuquerque Pit. Some of you guys are old enough to remember I was seven. I saw a lot of highlights afterwards. Uh, The thing is, there's a coach that was there. North Carolina was not supposed to win. It was 52 to 52. The guy heaves up a desperation shot. It goes wide, but another guy grabs a rebound, dunks it in before the clock expires. North Carolina State wins, and their coach, Jim Valvano, goes nuts. He's just running around doing this he doesn't know what to do he watched it it's amazing to watch and somebody's like what is wrong with you he's like we just won i don't know what else to do i mean that is the reality of it all his son has come home he doesn't know what else to do i'm a running i don't care if somebody sees my knees i'm a going and he goes out there and he runs and how does he how does he respond to that he embraces him and he kisses him and he says my son has come home again We should point number four. God loves you, not just when you've grieved him, not just when you're wandering in darkness, not just when when you're coming back to him, but he loves you while he's wrapping his arms around you. He wraps you in his arms, and we see this take place. And I wonder if you've ever had this moment, this moment where God just speaks to you in a booming voice, right in your ear, and he tells you, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, I still love you. There's nothing you can do to push yourself away from me. There's nothing you can do to cause a great divide between me and you. I still love you, and I'm pursuing you, and I want you in my arms. You know, it's crazy to me. I think about this often. People will come up to me after a sermon, and they'll say, Matt, this point right here, it really spoke to me. And I'll say, I didn't say that point. I have no idea what you're talking about. And the general consensus is, is God speaking to him and not me. And, and, and that's just the reality of all. It happens more often than I care to admit because I'd like to say that I change people's lives, but I don't. God does. And he's the one that's working and you see it take place and that's exactly what happens with this son. He grabs him in his arms and he tells him, I still love you. And guess what he said to him? The son said this in response. Father, I've sinned against heaven, and and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He's got this long spiel, and then dad interrupts. And the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Point number five, God loves you as he pours out his grace and his mercy to make all things new. See, there's a whole shift that takes place here. He says here in this passage, it's pretty amazing, because when we look at it, he gives him a robe, he gives him a ring, and he gives him sandals. And sometimes we don't see what that actually means because we just assume that. But he says, Give him the best robe. That best robe is the dad's robe. He says, this, You're mine. This is it. The second thing we see is a ring, it's a symbol of authority. I'm going to put that ring on your finger. And the third thing is sandals. It's a sign of wealth because the servants didn't get to wear shoes in the house. So he put these sandals on his feet. So he's saying, you're not going to be a servant. You're going to be my son. You still are my son. I'm bringing you back into the fold. I'm bringing you back into my house. And he's like, but, Dad, I just, I just need to earn earn your favor. I just need to earn your love. You know what earning your favor and earning your love is? It's called religion. He's not about religion. He's about relationship. He's about us Loving him in return. It's not about us trying to be good enough because that's exactly what this son is trying to do. But he takes all that and he sweeps it aside and says, you are my son. I don't know where that fits in for your life. But he's saying, you are my son. You are my child. But where's the shame for what the son did? Don't you think the Pharisees were wondering that? Don't you think the tax collectors and the sinners were wondering that? Where's the shame? He did something wrong. How can you just throw a party for him? Why are you just doing that? Well, guess what? It's gone. It's gone because God took it away. His Father took it away. We see the same thing in our lives. When we come to Him, the shame is gone. He has forgiven us. It's an amazing thing. And instead of shame, and instead of beating, and instead of humiliation, there's robes, and there's rings, and there's sandals. There's a celebration of a new life. See, the sweetest, richest word in all of Christianity is five letters, Grace. That song we sang up front, Amazing Grace. This is Amazing Grace. It's true. Grace is amazing. What happens? How does this tie in to the the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus? Well, guess what? When we look at the cross, that is Jesus running after us. That is him taking upon himself our shame. Isn't that an amazing thought? that grace, God's riches at Christ's expense, grace. That's where we see that. That's where we are. Jesus is bearing our sin and our shame on the cross. See, when we look at the cross, we have it up here. When you look at that cross, oftentimes it's a decoration. Oftentimes it's something we put on our walls. Oftentimes it's something we put in our ears or around our neck, whatever it is, but it's more than a decoration. It's a declaration, It's a declaration that you are not condemned because Jesus took that punishment for you and he took it for me. And I see that and I say, how does that happen? And how does this celebration go? Well, look what happens in 23. And bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us celebrate. For my son was dead and alive again. He was lost and now is found. And they began to celebrate. See, the son never got disciplined in the story. You know why? Grace. Because grace something God was reckless, something God was wasteful in his love towards you. That's why I think this story needs to be changed from prodigal son to the prodigal God or the prodigal father, because he gave all for you, and he gave all for me, and he was willing to go all in for that. See, if the cross and the resurrection aren't true, this is just a good story with no meaning be honest but if the cross and the resurrection are true if he is risen and he is risen indeed this thing is amazing it goes to this point to say there is no person that is out there beyond the reach of God's grace no person no matter what you've done no matter what I've done no matter what I've said no matter what you said nobody is outside of God's grace isn't that awesome isn't that something we could celebrate on a Sunday Isn't that something we can celebrate on a Monday and a Tuesday and a Wednesday and a Thursday and a Friday and a Saturday? Isn't that something we should celebrate every day we wake up that God's grace is that awesome? If the cross and the resurrection are true, our past does not determine our future. God does. His Son does. Grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. But what if you're too proud to receive the grace? What if you're too proud to receive that grace? Point six, God loves you when you're too proud to receive his grace too. It really is that way. I think a lot of times we forget, we focus on the prodigal son. We miss, there's a second brother in the story. That second brother, on the surface, looks very opposite of the younger brother. On the surface, he looks like he has it all together, but here's the deal. Something we need to understand in this story, that when the brother, younger brother goes in, they celebrate, where does the older brother end up at? outside the house. Let's read about it here in verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came, he drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked, what are these things, and what do they mean? And he said to him, your brother has come, your father has killed a fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was what? Angry. He was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I've never disobeyed your command, yet you have never given me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came home who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and that all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this brother you had was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. You know what's crazy about this brother? He's been so close to the Father, yet He's nothing like the Father. You want to stop and pause and think about that from the heavenly focus that God takes, or Jesus takes parables to? How many of us are close to the Father, religious people, but yet we're nothing like the Father? Have you ever experienced the wickedness of Christianity? Unfortunately, I say that with a smile, but it's not a smile. We have this tendency to be pretty evil to each other and and we we have this tendency to think well as long as i'm doing this as long as i'm doing all the things i mean when we stop and we look and we see this it says that he he said i've never disobeyed your command and you've never given me anything i've served you i've done this i've done that and we see that take place he's like look at all the things i've done when do we do that for god all the time isn't it Don't we say, God, look what I've done. Look what I've done. Look what I've done. I'm cleaning up my outside. But he says, your heart hasn't changed. You're nothing like me. You're still mean. You're angry that your brother who was dead is now alive. That's a bad thing. And it's funny because I look at that and I think to myself, you know, if we're just cleaning up the exterior and there's no change in the heart, it's worthless. If God isn't coming into our lives and changing us, it's worthless. Religion doesn't actually change our heart. God does. It's kind of like this. If if you're a a parent, maybe you've experienced this stage in life with your children that uh, we like to call potty training. And uh, in that stage of life, there's the child who decides Uh, maybe this has happened in my house, maybe it hasn't. I will not throw any names under the bus. But there's a child who decides they can do it all by themselves. And they go off to the restroom and you didn't know it, and they're quiet in there for a good long time, and you're trying to figure out what's going on, and you open the door and you wish you didn't know what was going on. Because they tried to clean up themselves, and that clean up themselves has turned into an absolute disaster. And they're not clean anymore. They're actually more messy than they were because they tried to rely on themselves. I see that in our lives with God. We think that as long as I do this, then, but we really become prideful and it makes a bigger mess of ourselves. It makes a bigger mess of ourselves. So what we have to understand is that God changes our heart. And sometimes we have a hard time seeing this. We believe that God loves that wayward sinner, that that one who is reckless, that one who is wasteful, but sometimes we forget that he also loves the religious people too. He loves us for who we are, which leads really to our last point. And that last point is this. You can choose to stay outside of God's love forever because that's exactly what the brother did. Do you realize in the story that it never is resolved? That verse 32 happens. He says, you can come in but nothing actually happens. You know why that is? I believe Jesus wants him to make a decision. I think Jesus wants to talk to the Pharisees who are close to God but hadn't had their heart changed. I believe God wants to talk to the sinners and the, and the tax collectors who are far, and they, they haven't had their lives changed either. Both people are represented in the story and say, hey, you have the choice to follow God. You have the choice to make him the Lord of your life because we like to say, well, Jesus' teachings are good, but I don't want him to be Lord. And this is the deal. If he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. And when we have to stop and think about that and let that soak into our lives, we have to allow him to either be the Lord or we just call him a lunatic, crazy teacher that we can you know, rely on every once in a while. But like Paul said, we can't even really rely on that because if the resurrection didn't happen, if he didn't come to die for you, to change you, to be the Lord of your life, then none of it really matters anyway. Here's the thing you have. You have a choice. What do you choose? Do you choose to follow after Jesus, or do you choose to continue to be wayward and follow after yourself, or continue to just choose to be religious and stand close to God, but still remain outside the house? That's the question you have to answer. I can't answer it for you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for who you are, and thank you for what you do, and thank you for the way that you speak to us, even through parables, even through a simple story about a wayward son and another son who has done all the right things on the outside. And God, I don't know who's represented in this room, but you do. You know who's being spoken to in this room. You know whose heart is is listening to what you have to say. As we look at this Easter Sunday and we celebrate the resurrection and the amazingness that, that he is risen indeed. God, help us to live it. Help us to live as if you are our Lord and our Savior. Help us to live it as if we are not our Lord and our Savior. But, God, often we want the blessings, but we don't want you. Or we want to do all the right things, but once again, it's all about me. God, it's not about us. It's about you. This story is about you and your love, and we're thankful for it. And, God, today there's a decision to be made. I pray we make it. I pray it in your name. Amen.